if you watch anyone on Broadway or anyone preparing for a play, it's sloppy at the very beginnings. You hear papers rattling. You hear the word, uh, you hear take two, take three, take four, take five, cut, right? But once the show happens, and I equate that to the game, it's seamless execution. But there's sloppiness that leads to getting to the seamlessness. You got to allow people and players to work through it no different than adults do when they learn a play or a performance. And ultimately, we're trying to put our guys in a position where they're performing. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Missouri men's basketball, Dennis Gates. Coach Gates is here today to discuss running a Princeton-style offense with tempo, seeking mentors, and we talk effective drill constraints for teaching and learning from other sports during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Coaches, one of the best ways to help support what we do is by becoming a member of SG+. We now have coaches and staffs from over 40 different countries who are happy to call members, and they get access to SGTV's over 500 detailed breakdown video library by both ourselves and coaches like Stan Van Gundy, Ryan Pannone, Martin Schiller, Josh Schertz, and many more, as well as the weekly deep dive newsletter, access to a private coaching community, and much more. For more information, email us at info at slappingglass.com or visit slappingglass.com to sign up today. Thanks for the support. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Dennis Gates. Coach, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you this morning. Man, who doesn't want to be on this show? Dan, Patrick, you guys do an awesome job with our basketball community. When I say basketball community, I mean basketball of all levels, men and women. You have listeners from way far and obviously near, but you guys do an outstanding job. So I appreciate you. Thank Thank you, you, Coach. Coach. Appreciate that. Really appreciate that. And we're really excited to have you on this morning and dive into a number of topics on and off the court with you. And we actually want to start on the court with you and talk about playing a Princeton-style offense, but with great pace and kind of marrying those two things together. And I think often you think of Princeton, you think of you know holding the ball and running a million cuts and really using the clock, which can happen. But for you, I know we've talked a little bit about playing it with a faster pace and the advantages of that. So we'll dive in right away and let you talk on that style. Well, first of all, there's nothing more demoralizing than a dunk, than a three-point shot that's way deep than a backdoor cut. The backdoor cuts are demoralizing. I don't care what time of the game it happens. It's one of those things that opposing coaches preach and they see it done and they just go berserk, right? It's one of those things that a player tries to stop, but it's one of the most difficult defending cuts or passes because it always happens at the least expected time. It's happening very low right? Those passes are happening very low and sometimes late. But the history of my invigoration or my overall 
interest came from growing up in the 80s, watching Phil Jackson and Tex Winters run, not the Princeton, but the Triangle. And you try to look at a system that impacts dudes and nothing better than Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and those guys. But you look at the other role players that were able to impact winning, impact those championship runs of the Chicago Bulls. At an early age, I said, what other you know, offenses are there that can impact the same way the triangle impacts the game? Then you look at the bigs. Once the first European bigs, passing bigs came to the NBA, Arvidas Sabonis and Vladi Divac. Those dudes were running European-style Princeton because it was big over there in teaching, but not just big here yet. It was just in those pockets of the Pete Corral family. So for me, I looked at the bigs. What made Vladi Divac so dangerous? What made Arvidas Sabonis so dangerous? I just remember Arvidas Sabonis always getting the ball, holding it up with one hand because he was in great stature and dropping off one-hand passes. It wasn't done at that phase in every team. This is when you had Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson, Shaquille O'Neal, and the dominant physical post, not the skill passing post that we see today or that we see in the triangle offense or the Princeton. Now, if Bill Cartwright and those guys can run the triangle, and Bill Cartwright was not the most skilled big with the Chicago Bulls, but they were in positions where they had to pass, move, and not just sit in that low block area. It intrigued me, man. It intrigued me. So during that run, I started analyzing a little bit more because I knew at some point I would become a head coach. I didn't know what level, whether it was high school. And I interviewed for jobs, didn't get high school jobs. I interviewed for JUCO jobs, didn't get those. Interviewed for Division three, Division two. I didn't get those. But I knew what I wanted to kind of implement when my opportunity came. I always kept that in my Rolodex, kept it in my files. And now that we see it today, we see Pete Corral's impact of leaving Princeton and going to the Sacramento Kings when he was an assistant. We see the impact and the growth of the game, making sure the big, the modern-day big, moves around and is more of a passer. Well, what offense fits that? The Princeton. It's initiated by the five-man who gets the touch. So Bam Adebayo with the Miami Heat, Jokic with the Nuggets, and obviously Steven Adams with the Grizzlies. Those are all... Princeton influence offenses that you see now in the NBA. And it's wonderful to watch. It's wonderful to see it. It's wonderful to see careers like John Morant start and excel through the Princeton offense. And no different than those organizations. They do a great job of adding wrinkles. So it's a beautiful thing. And that's why I've always inherited it. And we went on a version of it. Coach, playing the Princeton, but also then implementing pace into it. Maybe there will be times, like I said, being methodical, but How are you building the transition and kind of building the quick flow to get into your Princeton principles? I think the most important part is allowing the foundation of it to be set forth. And that's with spacing. That's with operating areas. That's with alignments. And that's with the triggers. How do you get that ball to your primary decision maker, meaning your five man? I think those things come first and building that structure, and then branching out to how you can add the special situations 
baseline out of bounds, sideline out of bounds, you know, full court transition, and obviously after a press break. I think when you transition into your foundation, you have to teach the foundation first. And for me, I want it to be a part of my guy's instincts. I don't want to be so nitpick that, okay, your foot is not on the elbow. No, I don't care if it's on the elbow or the three-point line. I think it adds a piece of ingredient that isn't predictable. And when you can give freedom, you give instincts. And when you can preach instincts, you're being unpredictable. You're being a player within a structure. So oftentimes we look at the Princeton as this is how you do it. This is the only way you do it. And this is why it's done. But if you have an inferior athlete, guys that are playing at the highest level or the potential, what it does is A, prepare my guys for the next level, meaning from college to the NBA. Then it prepares the athlete in three areas, dribble, passing, and shooting. But you add the components of the sub areas of spacing, right? Those things matter when you play basketball but also the rotating and rotations of five moving parts on the offensive end. And it's interchangeable. It allows a point guard to be a wing, a wing to be a point guard. It doesn't pigeonhole guys and say, you do not bring the ball up at this moment in time because ultimately we want my offense to be ran, not just through one person, but through multiple. I want whoever gets the rebound to push it because at that point we call those punt returns. We want guys to be able to punt return and get the ball down the court and initiate in those parts. We want to give our point guard, meaning our smaller player who plays that position on paper, the freedom to be the receiver, not always the quarterback. I don't want my guys who are, especially if they're great scorers, to just be pigeonholed into setting someone else up, never in their life being set up or free of that responsibility. And I don't want my wings to ever be accused of never being a decision maker. If you give those guys decision-making opportunities, that's where our culture, our community, you can see the unselfish spirit, the unselfishness, because you see the inter-exchangeable parts and guys freer playing basketball and accepting their roles. Speaking on that freedom, being unpredictable, I think another thing you always associate with the Princeton at times is like, hey, we get in like the weaves going before they hit the pinch post, before they hit the five-man. Now, with trying to be unpredictable, does that allow you hopefully to then kind of flow directly, like whoever brings the ball up can hit your five man in that catch area and you can get into your cutting your actions right away? Or will you still build in like, let's get a, you know, a handoff going, get some false action before we go to the five man? I think you have to teach it both ways because the game requires that. I think when we look at arrival spacing from the transition areas, you get the overall alignment, the overall alignment, meaning positioning of your offense, also the positioning of your defense will dictate where and what you initiate your style with. And you get guys' solutions to the problems and let them navigate it themselves. And they're never incorrect if they're doing one or the other. Sometimes coaches can get into a spat where, oh, you didn't do it this way. But if you give them different solutions, they'll be able to do it. We have versions where it's in one dribble or one pass. It's in two dribble or two passes, three dribbles or three passes, four dribbles or four passes. And we have codes where you can get into those actions with that. And sometimes it gives us all a freer mind because we're teaching it a certain way and our guys are accepting it a certain way. 
but more importantly, you're able to ingrain it in your spirit and your DNA of who you are. And now guys are playing free because it's a part of it. Coach, I believe I heard you right. You said you have some codes that will trigger some actions. Yeah. Is that a call you'll be seeing from the bench if you're seeing something? Or is that if, let's say, I'm bringing the ball up and something's denied, then I'm going to initiate, yell out the code or the call that will then trigger you know, the next one, two passes? It's verbal and nonverbal. It's recognition. But also, it's the position at which we're in or the ball is in. You teach it that way. You start it at the very, very, very skeleton phase of practice where you're doing it in a one versus old, then two versus old, then three versus old. And now the habits and the verbal and nonverbal and the positioning and recognition is being ingrained. It's just simple buildup, man. It's the part whole method. And that's how we teach. Coach, if I could focus in on one player for a second, and that's your big or your five, the decision maker you talked about. And I know just from running Princeton a little bit, the difficulties it can bring with teaching that five men to make decisions. It's a little bit different of a style than maybe always going and setting on ball screens and rolling where you're trying to get the ball in catch areas. You have to read split cuts. You have to read handoffs. You have to read if you pitch it and set the screen. There's all sorts of decisions. And for a young guy coming into your program and trying to teach that art, are there any things that you've learned about helping that player become better at that spot? You preach what you want done in games and you have to do it every day. There is a buildup. There is a learning curve. But after that learning curve is met, I think you'll see the utopia of what makes this type of offense or this spacing or even the skill because you're acquiring a skill, what makes it beneficial? And yes, no matter what, there's going to be an adjustment with any player at the next level from high school or JUCO into our program or now from another program into our program. And we've not had any issues with that because you have spacing, you have certain rules, regulations within it. And sometimes your skills and talents will allow by process of elimination what guys can or cannot do and what they will do more of versus not. And they have to understand and accept who they are. And sometimes you won't see Bam Adebayo doing the same thing as Jokic if you look in the NBA. But those guys are still running the same things, ultimately. Now the guards can take over and do more than the initial bigs, whether it's in DHOs, whether it's in more ball screens and pops or ball screens and rolls, whether it's in the past, right, versus the DHO. I think it all happens with who they are. If you're a three-point threat at that five spot, it adds a completely different dimension because now they have Jokic actually bringing the ball up more than Bam or Steven Adams. Because Steven Adams has, I'll say, John Morant. They'll have John Morant bringing the ball up more and Steven Adams never brings it up. But you see the other two guys in those influence Princeton offensive systems and schemes, Bam will bring it up in emergency. Jokic will bring it up off a made basket where he'll get an outlet, right? And he'll initiate. So that gives different perspectives on what you do, but also it all bleeds and marries and leads into the same scoring impacts in the half court offense. You want to score all over the court. You want to be able to enter the ball, whether it's on the pinch post or at the trail spot. You want your DHOs either on the wings or in the corner, and you want your ball screens right in the middle. So ultimately, for our system, we break the court up 
into thirds. So we have the middle third, which 16-6 from each sideline. And then we have the outer thirds. We want to operate in all the thirds and be able to play a basketball game that give our scoring cluster some sort of advantage by being dimensional. And we want it in a cluster. Coach, if we could stick on the advantage portion of this for a second. The advantage potentially that playing you know, an up-tempo Princeton style might bring to your program and, you know, let's say the landscape of college basketball or of a conference that plays maybe, say, more dribble drive or pick and roll, but playing a little bit differently, how that, you know, could potentially help from scouting you being, you know, tougher to play against versus also helping your defense having to guard, you know, difficult actions every day in practice. With a talented roster, you never know who the leading scorer will be. You never know who will be that person once the game gets into that half-court system. You never know who the person that will benefit from it. Sometimes the defense allows you to understand who that person will be. And at that point, you get to kind of see the game unfold in a way that our players have seen it every day. Now, I'm not a strict Princeton guy. I have influences of many coaches in my life. So I've done that. I've done split cuts. If we look at split cuts, think of when. Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker and Tim Duncan took over the NBA. They split cut the whole NBA to submission, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> literally. Tim Duncan on the pinch post and Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker, you know, with their speed, with their agility, doing certain things, right? Now you look at players and the impact. Well, where did the Euro step come from? That came from Manu Ginobili. Yeah. And it's now every kid does that in a game, every single person. But some coaches teach the Euro step, but they didn't teach the origin of the split cut. Well, every time you saw a Euro, you saw a split cut and that action and learning how to pass and move without the ball. I noticed that and I wanted to inherit that in whatever I now could build. So you never know who will benefit from it based off the defense, but also the defensive response. You want guys to stay committed into their cuts. You want guys to be able to move and shift knowing they may not get the ball. You want them to still cut as if they're receiving it every time with never, never, ever being discouraged by not receiving. No different than in transition. You want guys to run the floor to their checkpoints, to their operating areas as fast as they can, only to put pressure on the basket, knowing that they may not get it. And if you do that consistently, you'll eventually get what you want, whether it's on the first side of the offense, in transition, the second side, once you get into a half court, or the third side. Now, the shot clock will let you get to the third side. Now you got to get to emergency situations. But ultimately, you got to teach guys how to get to the third side and be effective cutters, screeners, knowing that they may not get the ball, but trying to find the best shot and the competitive advantage and trying to make sure you see the opportunity when it's given. On that note, with whatever offense, it's always a fun discussion, just like how you keep your offense flowing. And like you said, getting to the second side, but then maybe getting to the third side. Within the prints and maybe some teaching points that kind of always arise year after year to tell your guys like, hey, keep it flowing, keep the trust, let's get to the third side. Absolutely. I think made shots make any offense run, right? (laughs) 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 You got to have some shot makers, man. You got to be able to shoot the basketball or even have a high 
field goal percentage. But guys got to be able to put the ball in the basket. And that's the goal. That's the objective. When you have that, it makes it look easier. It makes it flow easier. It makes it more confident in a player's eyes to know that they can score with a low, low possession count, meaning time of possession, no different than a running back or a football team. Players have time of possession. We don't want their time of possessions to exceed the other. We want it to kind of be equal. And the most important person that has the highest time of possession, but has the lowest average of time, will and should be that five-man who's initiating. It shouldn't be anybody else. So ultimately, if your ball is moving and you're getting certain passes and that ball is going from one side to the next, you have a defense that's always shifting. Mm-hmm. Now you got to care the basketball. So it does not work without shooters and shot makers. It does not work without a positive assist to turnover ratio. And you have to be able to do that from every position. And now you'll see in the stat sheet, whether it's the third of the season, two thirds through the season, or even a full season, you'll end up seeing a cluster of assists and a cluster of turnovers from multiple guys, not just the point guard. And that lets you know that you have decision makers. That lets you know that you're scoring in different areas. But also, it lets you know that your offense is clicking in a certain way that it hadn't been. If you can have an offense and your defense matching the energy and enthusiasm and efforts, right, you have yourself a balanced team. It's only balanced if you're taking care of the basketball when you receive it. It's only balanced when you're making more shots than the other uh, opponents. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And on those notes, I mean, great points, but with the turnovers and like you said, running a Princeton off ball, more guys are touching it, but that can also arise so that more opportunities for guys to turn the ball over. Well, I think some turnovers come if guys are out of position. So you have to have a cadence to your offense. You have to have a rhythm to it. You have to have eye contact. You have to have verbal and nonverbal communication. You have to have deception, right? You have to have guys not doing the obvious, but trying to set up and misdirect. That takes pressure off on ball guys. You got to be able to give them three options, three or four options, no matter where they are. And therefore, if your defense is defending, let's say 15 total options in one possession, that makes you difficult to guard. Three options per person, 15 options in whole. That makes it difficult. Now, how do you get there? Well, you got to do it one option at a time. Get better and get great at something. And now you can move forward and implement more. So at the infant stages of any offensive introduction, you have to start with the least of all and build into it, but not skip steps. You can't skip steps and be too eager just to throw things in. You have to be good at it and to become great at it. You have to go through pains to become good at it before you become great at it. And now your identity, there's some things that you may do that you may do at a lower percent of the time. But when you look at the coaches out there who have ran this style in college, you look at Bill Carmody, right? You look at the longtime assistant who was at Princeton took over Princeton, got Northwestern. You look at his impact, right? You look at John Thompson III. You look at when he was at Princeton and Georgetown. You look at all of those assistants. You look at Tavares Hardy over at Loyola. You look at Craig Robinson was a head coach 
at Brown and Oregon State. You look at, you know, many guys, you look at over at Air Force, you look at the different teams that currently run it from Division One to Division Two. You look at Tara Vanderveer over at Stanford, right? They run a great version of what's good for them. And you'll see teams do more. Let's say there's five different traditional options. You'll see different teams run an option more than the others. And they're all different Mm -hmm. because it meets the player's skills and talents. It dictates what's being done. And sometimes we think as coaches, we do it, but the players are telling you what you need to do more or less of because their skills and talents are, you know, highlighted more. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high-powered, affordable, and easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com slash glass. That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. Coach, kind of zeroing in specifically on the backdoor cut, you mentioned how demoralizing a backdoor cut can be. And with the Princeton offense, you're obviously putting a lot of rim pressure by backdoor cuts for multiple players in multiple areas. For you, thinking about that cut and helping your players with making good backdoor cut decisions, when to go, how to time it, and then also for your offense to know when not to throw it, but use, I guess, the gravity of that cut to flow into some other action that you may want, a dribble handoff or an on-ball, whatever it might be. The best part about this offensive style, you're pretty much spaced out well beyond the hash mark. And the gravity of cuts, defenses never know when it's actually the cut that'll score or the cut that we want it to be. That gives you the deception that you need to always put pressure on the basket and the rim, but also the misdirection of other plays that's within the system that you want to be executed. Uh, So for us, ultimately, and for me, ultimately, I believe that you can score on the first side if you get a great shot. And sometimes the defensive rotations is what allows you to now say, okay, let's get it on the second side. We want the ball to touch the paint somehow, some way, whether it's through the drive, whether it's through the pass, and whether it's through meaning a cut. If you have a guy cutting the basket, the defense has to react to it. So now you're putting pressure on every level of the court, below the free throw line, free throw line extended and above. Those are the areas across sideline to sideline you want to be able to score in. Points in the paint matters, right? Mid-range, yes, that matters, but you don't want to focus too much on mid-range scoring. But behind the three-point arc, you have a real chance of impacting the game. And whenever you can have one cutter draw two guys and make a team communicate more than they have ever communicated in life, that's a win in the preparation department. And I enjoy not only playing against it because it puts pressure on your defense, but I also love running it and variations of it within my system because of how 
dangerous it is, especially when it puts pressure on your defense to talk as much as it does. We want to transition now to a segment that we call start, sub, or sit. And so we'll have a little fun here with you and we'll give you three different topics, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one. And then after your answer, we will dive in from there. Coach, if you're ready, we'll give you this first topic. I'm all set. Okay. Coach, this first one is about drills and drills that work. And so I'm going to give you start, sub, or sit. These three types of constraints that you might put in or on a drill and which the start would be your, I guess, favorite one when you want to have a, a good drill. So start, sub, or sit, these three constraints. Time constraint on a drill a scoring constraint, or an action constraint? Wow. Time, scoring, and action constraints. Yes. Okay. I will always start with scoring constraints, and I will sub in the action. Okay. You can never time on anything, so I will sit time. Okay. Sounds good. Coach, I'd love to start with your start, actually, and just ask you about when you're designing drills or whether you've taken a drill from someone else or you're trying to come up with something yourself for your own team, how you think about, you know, the scoring or scoring system to make it competitive and make sure the guys get something out of it. Yeah, I think ultimately if you put an emphasis, meaning five points for the way you want to score, guys are going to try to score the five point play. On offense or defense, guys will want to win because they know the clock meaning the scoreboard and what the scoring opportunities are. They're going to emphasize that if you want to work on DHOs. Okay, if you score off a DHO, you get seven points. Guys are going to be DHO on my lot. <laughs> <laughs> if you put scoring on back door, say that's a 10-point play. Guys are going to be trying to set their man up with precision. They're going to try to pass it and now set their guy up even more and now get to the 10-point play, even if it's on the third side of the offense, right? If you say you can score, your points are singled on the one side, on the second side, it's double. If you score on the third side, it's triple. You're going to be able to now get your offense, instead of saying the words, man, get it, hey, pass it, move it, move it, move it. If you just set up that scoring that way, it'll get to the third side. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I'll start with the scoring, no doubt. Okay. Coach, I guess pulling back out for a second, like zooming out on this, like whether whatever the constraint is that you may or may not use, when in practice would you, let's say you have a 20-minute segment, when would you decide it's not worth using a constraint? You'd rather just have them play naturally and not put some sort of constraint on the drill versus when you do want to put a constraint on a drill. If you see them struggling with something, Sometimes you just want to allow them to play and figure it out. In games, it's all about figuring it out. You have to give them that opportunity to play through the not just sloppiness of learning something or the untiming of it. If you apply it similar to learning a play, if you watch anyone on Broadway or anyone preparing for a play, it's sloppy. It's sloppy at the very beginnings. You hear papers rattling, you hear the word, uh, you hear take two, take three, take four, take five, cut, right? But once the show happens, and I equate that to the game, it's seamless execution. But there's sloppiness that leads to getting to the seamlessness. 
you got to allow people and players to work through it no different than adults do when they learn a play or a performance. And ultimately, we're trying to put our guys in a position where they're performing, not thinking, but performing. That's why it's called a performance. Yeah, <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. And coach, maybe in that sloppiness phase, you know, I think we all face it when you put a constraint in inevitably your defense will start to cheat because maybe they figured out that constraint. So absolutely. How do you manage that or handle that or do you, or do you just let it go when it's a new thing the offense has to figure out? Yeah, two things. Sometimes if you want to see it done a certain way, you put the constraint on the defense as well, meaning it can't cheat certain things. Or if the play is happening to the left, you put a counter constraint on it and say, okay, if the defense cheats this way, this is a 10-point play this way as well. And that'll keep the defense honest. That'll keep everybody playing solid defense. The other part is you look at it and give all your defense four fouls. The next foul, you're fouled out, and it gives the other team 10 points as well. Those are counter constraints that you can throw in at any time that keeps everybody honest. And if you can do that, those are real situations because sometimes players have to play with four fouls. Sometimes your team may be so aggressive that the other opponent is in a double bonus, and if you foul, you're just giving guys two free throws. Well, that's what the defense is working on if you play with four fouls, or in the next one is a foul out, or you give guys the option, this foul. If you foul, you can give up 10 points. So now you see guys walling up perfectly. Mm -hmm. You see guys solid defense not cheating or trying to steal the ball you see guys just blocking out perfectly and sometimes we often forget to have a perfect offensive possession you have to have some type of defensive perfection as well mm -hmm. you can't not have real reps defensively in those scenarios because those scenarios especially before the half and in the game they happen all the time no foul under a minute we don't want to foul or put somebody on the line under a minute in a close game. Coach, you mentioned reps and then getting real reps. Within your drills, I guess, you know, if someone were to stop into your practice and an average drill that you might may or may not be doing, how quickly is that drill? How many reps are you trying to get in, you know, versus teaching versus stopping on an average drill? We want as many reps as we need to move forward in our next practice. I think that's very important in any kind of coaching that you have as many reps as needed. Right. You can implement press break. You can implement press defense. If it's not right, you shouldn't move forward. You should be flexible enough to get it right. Therefore, the details are taught. And now you can continue to build over a full season that component and limit the time in it as the weeks go by because you've done it right the first time. If you leave teaching points out, you'll be teaching the same thing in a month. Yep. The worst thing I can do as a coach is repeat myself a month later. The best thing I can do as a coach is spend more time on it than it's on my itinerary to get it right. The best thing I can do for my players is make sure they're held accountable and doing it right. The best thing a player can do it to a coach is tell the coach they don't understand, can we get more reps? Those things matter, and that's what communication is about, but also that's what accountability is. Player to coach accountability, coach to player accountability, coach to coach accountability player-to-player -player accountability. It has to thrive within your program in all honesty to get it right. Hey coaches, it's no secret our affinity for Spanish basketball. 
With their international prowess, as well as having one of the best domestic leagues in the world, their sustained success lies in their ability to develop quality coaches with a deep understanding of the game. Now you can gain access into their coaching methods and philosophy with the International Basketball and Mentoring Course from Sport Coach, a six-month course dedicated to teaching Spanish tactics, player development, scouting, methodology, plus a monthly webinar hosted by us at Slapping Glass, all for under $100 a month. Moreover, upgrade your experience with small group mentoring from professional coaches with over 10 plus years in the ACB and European leagues. Registration closes this Sunday, November 27th, with the course set to begin December 5th. So act now by going to sportcoach.es en or sign up for our Sunday morning newsletter for more information. And now back to our conversation. All right, coach. Our next start subset has to do with learning from other sports. Ooh, I love this topic. We know it's up your alley. So I'm going to give you three different sports. But a little caveat, I'm going to give you, let's say, two sub-questions or sub-categories within this start-sub-sit. So the first one will be start-sub-sit, the most you've learned from another sport in the non-tactical coaching space. And then the next part will be the most you've learned in a tactical, kind of tangible, on-the-court space. So the three sports are football, soccer, baseball. Wow, baseball. (laughs) (laughs) I have to post three and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, this is not fair. I don't like this. Okay. All right. Uh, football will be my start. Baseball will be my sub. And soccer will be my sit. Okay. And would this still be the same order, Coach, for both non-tactical and tactical, as far as the learnings you've taken away from them? Yeah, I'll just keep it that way. It's so evolving. We'll be here for three hours if I changed it from non-technical to tactical. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Well, coach, I'd like to ask you about soccer and just kind of what you've learned from there. And Mm -hmm. have you learned anything about spacing from soccer and how they space and kind of free play? Well, I'll say this. During my time at Florida State, I've watched big time Hall of Fame coach Mark Kirkorian, and he won two national championships on the women's side. He won a little under 500 games. So I would watch and try to learn from different coaches. And the spacing in the soccer world is elite. But also the passing and scanning, meaning to see where you should pass it and the amount of counts of scanning, meaning eye contact, surveying the field, the next play. Those things are important when you see the success of soccer teams. You pass the ball more than you even score in soccer. So the ratio, I believe, is like 90 to 10. 90% you're passed, 10% you're scoring. And to pass the ball the way that they pass it, it requires elite spacing. It requires you to not collapse your offensive shell, but also your defensive shell, because bad defense can lead to another team's offense, but it can lead to your bad offense as well. So it carries over as the game shifts. There's no change possessions more, if you look at it, than basketball other than soccer, right? Because there's more turnovers in soccer than there is basketball. Right, yeah. There's well more. But also hockey changed possessions a lot and requires space. So those things marry into each other offensively because those offenses directly impact 
the team's defense or inability to be in a defensive position. Coach, I wonder, you know, and I know it was kind of an impossible question because I know you spent so much time at all of these different sports, but just kind of overall, what you've learned from other sports about like teaching styles, how other coaches coach, anything from those learnings. So I think the coach that I've learned the most from outside of the coaches I played for was a gentleman by the name of Jack Clark. Jack Clark is the former U.S. rugby coach, current University of California, Berkeley rugby coach. He's won well over 20 national championships. And as a student, I would watch some of his practices. So when it was my time as an assistant where I saw, okay, I'm getting closer and closer to this head coaching thing. I said, let me fly out to see Jack and hang out with Jack Clark and his staff, Coach B and those guys. And they taught me so much in terms of the non-tactical, tactical, but also program building, organizational structure, and different things like that. So he is a coach that I've learned a lot from. The other coaches, when I was a GA, I was watching Bobby Bowden's practices. So I've been around great coaches. Baseball, I list baseball as a sub because of this. I was able to still learn from Mike Martin Singer, who's won over 2,000 games. He's the all-time winningest Division I baseball manager out there. And his success, he started his career as a basketball coach at Tallahassee Community College. So I could talk basketball with him, but also talk logistics and baseball and what he's learned and what I can also learn along the way. Lonnie Alameda, the same way. She was a softball coach for FSU and they won the national championship. She's won over 650 games, six ACC championships, but she won the 2018 Women's College World Series and took FSU there. So I've learned from a lot of people and I'm not afraid to step into different sports or even step into different levels and have conversations with NBA coaches, women's basketball coaches, WNBA coaches, soccer coaches, baseball coaches, rugby coaches, volleyball coaches, because I think everything applies into one. We're teaching and motivating young people and how best can we communicate what we want to communicate with the changing landscape of learning styles that these kids have. Coach, I just always am so interested in coaches like yourself that also get a chance to study and watch other great programs. Overall, what possibly you've taken away from them about how those coaches manage problems or manage stress or manage crisis within their program and how they kind of work through those things? Well, I think we all have to understand this is a generation that has gone through terrorism. So there's embedded fear. This is a generation that has gone through a pandemic. So there's inherited safety and health concerns. And then you have a generation that lives their life in silence, but also in a world that's not real in Twitterverse, Instagramverse, and all these social media platforms. We have to somehow find a way to meet them on their turf whether it's through their DMs and through their text messaging and through their style of communication, because some of their communication is nonverbal. Some of their communication is with their eyes on sight and actions and body language. This generation makes decisions with their eyes more than they make it with their hearts and their brains. They make decisions with their eyes. Oh, is it safe? Not the rationale behind it of the process is because they can't see that far. So the question is, when you look at a Leonard Hamilton, who started coaching in 1970. He's been coaching at a high level 
because he's evolved with the student athletes and he's taught himself over a period of time how to communicate in the changing times. That's what makes him effective. That's why Mike Martin Sr. could coach as long as he's coached. That's why you have successful coaches like Jack Clark being able to communicate with these kids because ultimately our job is to get them to a space where they're performing thought-free. But we have to meet them on the turf and understand who they are as people first. And now that'll help us sort of teach them what we need to teach them, but also build those things in our itinerary. The attention span of a young person nowadays, you can't expect them to remember everything in a three-hour practice. So you have to have different things in that that cuts the practice up, but give them the reset button that they need to now retain the information or they'll just shut it out. It won't go into one ear out the other. It wouldn't even make it that far. It'll be shut out, <laughs> right? Right. And you have to be able to now figure out your teaching methods and the environment at which you plan on coaching and building it out so that you can now have an effective learning environment for your young people. Coach, just on that note to finish up, what have practices or how have you continued to evolve and stay current with your players? Well, for me, I set up my practices in different ways. You have lesson objective learning, you have cooperative learning, you have visual learning, you have inquiry-based learning, you have discussion learning, you have reflective learning, you have player-led learning, you have experimental learning, you have affirmation learning, you have corrective learning, you have observation learning. All those learning styles are important in your practice plan because every kid will tell you that they learn different than the next. I can't have a practice that's full of lessons, objective learning, and there's a kid that may learn better visually, or there's a kid that may le learn better in discussion. There's a kid who may learn better in reflective. Most importantly, you want a player-led learning team. There's no doubt about it. But sometimes corrective learning is there, observation learning, kids sitting on the sideline, and some kids need experience and experimental learning where it's sloppy and messed up and they can learn through that environment and apply with the real world challenges, meaning real world and real games. So those are different learning environments that I usually do make sure that's encompassing once I find out the personality of each player. Knowing that all your players learn different, all these learning kind of styles, philosophies, when you're in a game and let's say it's crunch time and you're in a timeout. And you're aware that these five guys you're talking to may learn differently. I guess, what are you cognizant of in that timeout to make sure everyone's walking away at that timeout on the same page? Well, you have to have three layers of your huddle. The first layer is player-led where, where coaches are talking to each other and players are talking to each other, right? The next part of it is some kids can come off the board visually and retain the knowledge by reading it or seeing the plays and understand and remember everything. But there's always that one guy that may not know. So you got to turn that visual into a discussion and certain questions so that they can self-discover what they're supposed to do. Hey, so I just came off the board. What am I asking you to do? Now it incites discussion. And they'll tell you if they retain everything or they'll give you a look and smile. I don't know, coach. At that point, now you can go with the maybe the corrective learning, or you can go player-led and make sure the players are doing a double huddle because they know the personalities of their teammates. All those things are real, and it happens every day in practice. 
So to any coach out there listening, make sure you understand the learning styles of your players individually, as your team as a whole, as your lineups, and make sure your coaches and teammates know each other. And they'll eventually try their very best to connect with those that learn in different learning environments to make sure they don't put themselves in jeopardy, not executing out of a timeout, not executing a play. It happens. Yeah. People just don't know what they're actually yeah. doing. <laughs> Very true. But it, this happens more than you think. It's just not talked about or broken down the way that we have, or I have broken it down. For sure. Yeah. Coach, really well said. And Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. So thanks for playing that game with us. Oh, man. And I started man. <laughs> I didn't have, have enough subtitles you guys just gave me football soccer and baseball man <laughs> <laughs> yeah i gave you good ones coach that was a lot of fun thanks for yeah. going through those with us coach we've got one last question before you as we wrap up the show once again thank you very much for your time and your thoughts today and welcome back anytime to talk again or shoot a commercial with us your choice and uh <laughs> Do you mean that, man? Do you mean that? <laughs> I do. Absolutely. Coach, do. if we're shooting a commercial, you'll be the first one we're calling. Oh, I'll shoot my first commercial <laughs> right now. Hey, if you're out there coaching the game of basketball, tune in to the Slapping Glass Podcast. <laughs> Dan and Patrick, you guys are the best. I appreciate it. Thank you, Coach. We <laughs> appreciate you. you. <laughs> right. Our last question for you as we wrap up, and it's one we ask all the guests, is what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Wow. I think I'm going to answer this very differently than anybody has answered this. The best investment I could have made was recruit my mentors. And I say that because at the age of 18, 19 years old, I told George Ravlin, hey, coach, I want to be just like you. I was just a stranger. I told him this. I want to be a college head coach. It became his dream to see my dream come true. And I told the same thing to Leonard Hamilton as I recruited him to be my mentor. Oftentimes we think mentors are people that are just in our lives. Yes, they are. It can be someone far away. It can be someone close that's in your everyday life. But also mentors can be strangers that every day you have to cultivate the relationship and allow your dream to be their dream, their dream. To see my dream come true is part of what I was able to manifest and obviously do with Leonard Hamilton and George Ravlin. Those two guys have played an important part in my life only because I wasn't afraid to turn a stranger into a friend. I wasn't afraid to do that. So investing, I wouldn't be able to be where I'm at now if I didn't invest the time in those relationships to go from stranger to a mentee in their eyes. And for me, from a stranger to a mentor in my eyes to them. So that was an investment that I made and I'm glad I made it because every fabric, the thread that holds me together as a coach, as a man, as a husband, as a father in his business has been based off of their advice, but also their leadership. And, you know, they've put a mirror up to me and allowed me to see the best version of myself. Leonard Hamilton allowed me to think that I was making all these decisions at Florida State, which he put me in position to do, that gave me confidence because of the relationship we had, you know, years ago. That gave me the opportunity to have the confidence to leave the nest, leave the program that I helped build 
and had such a great part of it helped me to have the confidence needed to take over at Cleveland State and it helps me even to this day. So now when I call them, I don't look at it from a time standpoint of what time it is on the clock or the watch or the day. If it's 2 a.m., I'm going to call them and they'll answer. If it's 3 a.m., I'll call them. If they need to call me back, they'll do that. But they'll answer at the least and give me the guidance that I need because they know that it's been an investment for a very long time. And I just promise to build the same bridges to other people in my life. And the best way you can give someone their time back is to allow them a front row seat into what their time has manifested or built. And their time has built who I am. And I allow them a front row seat any day of the week in my program, in my life. And I'm going to do the same for whomever recruit me to be their mentor. No different than I did. Coach, I think you bring up an awesome point, and I'd just like to ask one follow-up. What stood out to me in our conversation, whether it's visiting other coaches or with your players, is your ability to cultivate real, genuine relationships. And when you said going from a stranger to a mentor and someone who's invested in your success, I think that's a really hard skill for people. It's not something that maybe comes natural or people miss it by it's just they're only looking to take, take, take from someone. What would you recommend or why do you think you've had such tremendous success in recruiting mentors that actually invest in you and cultivating relationships? Well, there's no fear at the very beginning of it. I think fear stops us from doing a lot of things. And then the inability to humanize a person is the other. Everyone wants to be treated like a human, not an object, not a title. They want to be treated like a human. So if you treat someone like a human and they don't see the fear in you or the nervousness in you and it's normalized, that drops the barriers of separation and differences. No matter what race or what religion, humanizing someone allows you to treat them how they want to be treated. You don't see a color. You don't see a religion. You see a human. You see a person. And innately, we all have the ability to see someone fear, see someone in nervousness, either push it away or receive it and limit that fear. And we have an objective. We have an obligation to normalize each other, humanize each other. And now you can easily build relationships that need to be built. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>